Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. And my guest today is um, actually here for part two of a two-part series that we're doing with um, a team that did some really amazing work in their practice. Um, the first episode was the practice owner and a member of his team talking about some really cool work that they've been doing to get through the last couple of years um, intact, <laughs> which I think is just a feat in and of itself. And um, our guest today is Helen Beeman, who has been an integral part of that journey with this veterinary team. And she's got some really good um, insights that I think pretty much anyone in the veterinary world can benefit from. So Helen, welcome to Central Line. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Helen, would you mind just giving us a little introduction to who you are and how you came to be here? Sure. Um, so my name is Helen Beeman. I am a licensed clinical social worker within the state of Oregon, and I got my bachelor's of science from Oregon State University, um, which also has a great veterinary program. And uh, my focus there was human development and family sciences. And so that's where I started. And then over the course of time, popping in and out of different jobs within human and social services, um, also a lot that was unrelated where I just grew up and got life experience, I decided to go back to school and I got my master's of social work from the University of Southern California. And that's what allowed me to get into the career that I'm in today, which goes by a lot of different names. Um, but in my current role, I'm considered a behaviorist or a psychotherapist. We put the word psycho in front of everything we do just to keep it exciting. So um, I work in different primary care settings as part of an integrated behavioral health care model so that we basically augment through mental and behavioral health practices whatever people are working on to improve quality of life or manage complicated medical or health situations. That's really neat. I love that, um, that sort of description of a more holistic approach to health and I'm using holistic in the way it's meant to be used and not in a woo-woo way <laughs> um, <laughs> and that brings you know that is really part of why you're here because a lot of what you do um, and how you've helped this team um, was just it's evidence-based it's not um, something that you have to sort of believe before you do. It actually is rooted in science. And um, I love that that is available to us because there are a lot of people who I think, especially in this industry, we're science people and we need to know that there's evidence for why we're doing something if we're going to spend time and potentially resources doing it. So um, we'll get into that. But before we start, I would like to ask you a personal question. Uh, I was wondering if you were a dog, what breed of dog would you be? So um, I did put a lot of thought into this, and it's <laughs> <That's> very <laughs> which important, is, which is a gift and a curse. Yeah. Um, so I just recently, over the last couple of years, became um, a wiener dog uh, enthusiast. Mm -hmm. I only have one that I got from the Oregon Dachshund Rescue, so shout out to them. Um, so my answer is that I would want to be a wiener dog. I think maybe I kind of already am in human form. Um, I'm very short, so I've already kind of adapted to that. Been accused most of my life as having like little man syndrome. So um, <laughs> <laughs> the things that I really think would work for me as a dachshund is 
um, you wouldn't have to walk upstairs because, you know, IVDD. So mm-hmm. obviously I'm rolling the dice with that. Um, but I have to <laughs> carry, carry my me. dog. Yeah, please <laughs> carry me like a princess up and down stairs. I don't have to jump on or off of things. Um, they're just really low to the ground, which I think feels very secure. And I already have trouble finding clothes that fit me properly. So <laughs> like all the major drawbacks, I think, you know, like my dog's name is Tucker and we buy him like cute clothes and I always have to alter the sleeve length so we we can work around any issues I have I just he's an extraordinary cuddler um and I just I would love to spend my days cuddling and they bake in the sun like sometimes to the point where I'm like how do you how do you not melt but he doesn't so that's my that's my decision I would be a wiener dog and everyone thinks you're cute and when you act poorly like the excuses, the grace that people show these dogs mm-hmm. because they're so bizarre looking and adorable. They're just like, it's okay. He has like power and control issues. And everyone's just like, oh, of course, he's yeah. a wiener dog. Like, it's fine. you be cranky if you were so small? Exactly. You're so long and like your legs are so short. And I just, I want those allowances made for my poor behavior. So it's so funny because my chihuahua is like the same. I, I think, you know, chihuahuas and wiener dogs, I think very, can be very similar. And yes. he also has IVDD. He's had back surgery oh. as have I, and he's cranky and everybody's just like, Oh, he's so funny. And then they like pick him up and move him places. And he's not allowed to jump down off of things. So I, I completely identify with that. My fiance says that, um, Frankie is like a manifestation of me, mm-hmm. like all the things that I can't actually do. <laughs> friend can do and get away with. I totally get that. I also love, like, everybody listening and watching has to love you now immediately because you alter your dog's clothes. Like, well, you you have to, otherwise he gets tangled and then, like, you like, find him stuck in, a, in like, a sleeve somewhere and it's, it's just really traumatizing for the whole family. So, yeah, you just got to put a couple stitches in it and, you know, just get things one size too big, you know, for that, mm-hmm, for that big chest, you know, mm-hmm. so... Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I get cute. it. Okay. Well, I feel like everybody listening knows something about you now. And so do I. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so the team that we talked about, um, at, that I mentioned at the beginning is the, uh, Grove veterinary clinic team in Oregon and, uh, the practice owners named Charles Hurdy and he and his team member Alana were on the podcast. Actually, um, we're going to air this episode right after that one. So it will have been last week that it aired. And, um, Charles wrote to us here at AHA at the podcast email address and just told us his story. And it was so compelling. And now he's been on a couple of podcasts and I know you were on a podcast with them and we did a story and Newstat. He was interviewed in their trends magazine. He, it's really, he's making ripples with what that team has been doing. And it really is thanks to you that they've been able to come through this and create such a culture for themselves of um, just being able to handle challenges that they meet together. And so if you want to um, hear the full story about Charles and the Grove team and their initiative that they call Grit Plus Love, please listen to that that episode. Um, Because today I really want to focus on how you worked with them and the work how the work that you did with the Grove team can be translated into other practices and for other people. So, um, so could you start by defining cognitive behavioral therapy for us? Yes. 
So CBT, it's important to know that when people say CBT, they might be saying cognitive behavioral theory or cognitive behavioral therapy. So it, one is derived from the other, obviously. So cognitive behavioral theory states that our thoughts or perceptions, sometimes even our values and our rules that we, you know, have shaped for us or are just part of who we are, those things that help us get through life basically shape our emotional experience of things that happen to us. And then our emotions have that interplay with our behavioral choices. Um, sometimes these things don't feel like choices, but CBT says they are. And then our behaviors ultimately kind of reinforce um, our you know, experiences and our perceptions. So it kind of just goes in a cycle. And so cognitive behavioral interventions draw on one of those kind of general three components of thoughts um, or cognitions, emotions, and then behaviors. And so one of the first things I usually do with people to help them understand is I draw three bubbles and I'm a terrible illustrator. So everybody's fortunate that they don't have to deal with that with me today. Um, but I put, you know, each concept in a bubble and I draw like an arrow going from one to the next. And sometimes it doesn't always go in the same direction, but just understanding and accepting the relationship between those things helps you understand kind of the broader idea of CBT, which is that if this is how life works, then we have a lot more control over the things that sometimes feel very automatic. Like thoughts can feel very automatic, um, but they're generally based on things that we've learned um, or ways that we've just adapted from our experiences. And in turn, our emotional responses or our perceptions of things also get really shaped by those things as a reaction. And then that in turn generally has a, an impact on what we decide to do or what we decide not to do as far as behaviors. Um, and so we can change our emotional experience by adjusting any of those other factors. And so I just like that, you know, the concept is so straightforward. Um, but basically that's what CBT is, is understanding the interplay between those things so that you understand the reason why we would do any of the skills related to cognitive behavioral therapy. That's really, uh, I love how you put that because it sounds like part of, a big part of CBT is really figuring out or just deciding that you have control, you have some control, that your behavior is not completely out of your control, even though the things that happen to us can be completely out of our control. And we had a guest on who have, had written a book about um, toughness and resilience and what true toughness and true resilience really looks like, same with Steve Magnus. And um, he was saying that one of the things that it's very difficult for us to do is be resilient and feel like we have the ability to keep going when we don't have any control. So I like the idea very much that if we're in control of our behavior, that we have to always have some power in a situation, even if we can't control some of the big things that happen. Exactly. I think empowerment is a huge thing and mm -hmm. empowerment isn't just solely tied to cognitive behavioral interventions, but I think many of us, and I'm talking to all the people in vet med out there, we're perfectionists or, you know, we're just maybe a little bit too smart for our own good. And yeah. so we just really get stuck in our own heads. And that's what CBT highlights, which is sometimes a hard thing for people to accept is just how much of our own distress we're responsible for. Mm -hmm. And once we can navigate that part, um, 
I think we shift very quickly into empowerment, right? It's kind of like if you've ever seen that meme that says, relax, everything's out of control yeah. or nothing's under control, right? And it's just yeah. like that feels really scary to, yeah. to people. But if you can accept that and then just reach for the things that you do have control of, I think that um, is a really powerful tool. Yeah, uh, love that. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about a lot of parallels to um, another conversation that we had about mindfulness and meditation. Um, but CBT is not the same thing, right, as mindfulness. Can you talk about how those things might be different as we define them? Sure. And I, I would actually say that mindfulness practice um, is very much a part of CBT. It aligns with the ideas of CBT. And I think it's really important you use the word holistic. And I think just like with anything, CBT has so many different facets and so many different areas that have their own sets of tools. And so I think to really make this work for people and to get the most out of it is understanding all the different components that are available because you might really like mindfulness-based practice. And for me, I might feel like I'm going to work myself up into a panic attack if I'm sitting there trying to clear my mind, right? Like that is literally my nightmare is mm -hmm. emptying my mind. And so I always kind of joke around with people in session, but really it's true like you just get to adapt the skills to meet your needs and whatever makes sense for your brain. Sometimes we have to like do what feels really, really, you know, opposite of how we think or how we feel. And that's the parts where we're actually like doing some really good work and there's stress there or distress there because we're about to like make it better. And other times like with skills, I tell people like, you know, if it feels wonky, keep going. And like you're, you're right on something. If it feels really, really uncomfortable, then we need to go in a different direction. And that's the nice thing about it is like CBT does include mindfulness. It includes, you know, things like sensory grounding, which you can Google if you want more information on. It's just really, really basic things that somehow aren't very intuitive to most of us. But once mm -hmm. you, once you get it, then it unlocks this whole kind of different perspective that people can use and people who are really smart and really want facts and really want like black and white, tell me how to be more comfortable, tell me what to do, give me the tools. That's what CBT offers. And, and I like that it's not vague. I like that, mm -hmm. you know, like I yeah. obviously can dance in the woo woo world quite a bit because of what I do, <laughs> but naturally I don't, I don't like to live in that space. I like facts. I like strategy. And um, it's with CBT, those worlds are married. And mm -hmm. so it just, it's, there's something for everyone within this really, really broad type of um, intervention. So um, I would say it does include mindfulness practice. I think a lot of people think of, you know, if we're going to change our thoughts, that usually means um, be positive right? Yeah. How, how do we find our happiness? And I, I struggle with like kind of throwing up in my mouth a little bit when people are like preaching the sunshine and happiness. The Part, toxic positivity. The right? toxic positivity, yeah. which it's like we had to really go too far over to one side of the continuum before people were like, this actually feels really bad and weird to try to kind of lie to ourselves, right? Because life mm -hmm. can be really hard. Um, in working with the Grove Clinic, I think one of the biggest things that I felt like I could offer based on their feedback is just the validation, right? Me coming in there and them being perplexed when I'm like, 
y'all go through a lot of traumatic experiences every day. There is a tremendous amount of grief and loss in the work that you do. Um, and everyone's just like, well, this is what we do. And I'm like, nevertheless, right? Just yeah. honoring those experiences. And if I went in there and tried to tell everybody to just be positive and, you know, think positive thoughts, like, I don't know that anyone would have listened to me because it's just not, it's not realistic. And in some ways it can really invalidate some of the challenges that we all face in life. Um, and so I think we do modify thoughts a lot, a, a ton in CBT. That's one of the, the main kind of groupings of skills that I, that I teach and that I use myself. Um, but CBT is so broad that, you know, I could, I could talk to you for three days about all the different directions that you can head in it. I won't, I won't do that. Um, but <laughs> Definitely includes mindfulness practice, definitely includes more of the concrete skills, um, changing perception, changing behavior too. Very cool. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that later. I think later um, in this conversation, we'll probably have you demonstrate and talk about some of the actual exercises that you do with people um, to, to try to get them thinking a little bit differently, um, because it really does seem like it's, it's a, a different way of thinking about your own brain and about your own behavior. And a lot of us feel so um, like a victim of circumstance in a veterinary situation. I know just like, why is this happening again? Like, why can't I change this person's mind? Why did this happen to this patient? And um, we can't change any of that, but it is nice to know, to feel like there's something we can kind of grab onto. Now is CBT, is that like a style of therapy? Like as a therapist, do you solely use CBT? to help your your clients or is it like a tool in a toolbox? So CBT is considered like a theoretical orientation is like the nerdiest evidence-based way of putting it. <laughs> um, so it means that as a CBT practitioner, I that's what resonates the most and makes the most sense to my brain about like how do we make sense of like human distress. And so most of That's the a big question. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. Um, and yeah. a lot of a lot of therapists go around and they'll say like, oh, I use a very eclectic model. And like a psychologist that I worked with very early on in my career was like, hey, don't be don't be that girl that says you're eclectic. Like, you got to figure out what really resonates, what makes sense. Have a primary modality that a lot of different things are derived from and then use the other stuff as more of like an ancillary way to um, either gain insight or give people validation, things like that. So primarily I practice cognitive behavioral based interventions, which like we just covered really can include so many different things. And then um, within CBT, like there's problem solving therapy, there's solution focused therapy, which I think is really amazing. That theory really talks about like working with people where they are, but having them draw on past ways of coping, which I think is very empowering because a lot of us forget how much we've been through. And so yeah. I think it's like, before you get out there and you're like, oh, I'm an expert. I'm going to teach you how to like be more psychologically flexible and comfortable in your life. It's like, why don't you ask them what they're already really good at, what they've used before, and then build from that. Not only does it help you align with the people that you're working with, but it reminds them of one of the most important things, which is you probably have everything that you need to be more comfortable in life. You just have to kind of maybe shine it up or modify it a little bit, grow it up a little bit. 
Um, the other theoretical orientation that I draw a lot from is kind of a psychodynamic lens and that's how I usually talk about it it's like it's it's a lens that I look through and I I walk alongside people in their journey in therapy to help them use that lens too and start to apply it more not only to understand patterns in their life where they maybe came from um, not only so they can show themselves a little grace right about how they got where they are, but also then flipping that lens and helping them understand other people's behavior and other people's perspectives a little bit differently to honor just how different we are. And, you know, when, when I work with people like on their relationships or even stuff with their employer or with, with coworkers or, you know, in this situation with pet parents, right? It's like, if we can understand where they're coming from, um, it might still be completely irrational and really difficult to deal with, but I think sometimes the understanding helps us connect and remember, like, we're all kind of in this together, and if you can see something from somebody else's um, standpoint, then you can figure out how to deal with it a little bit better, but you might also unlock ways that you can communicate with that person or work with them differently so that you get them out of their own way, too, and I think that's really valuable with the work that you all do. Because if we're not honoring, like, why are they behaving this way? <laughs> then you don't know where they're stuck, potentially. And you might be stuck, too. And that's, like, when, when two people are yeah. stuck in different things. And so it's... It doesn't go well. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't go well. And it's, I mean, it can be really frustrating, like, on the outside. Because I think once we look back, we might understand things better. But when you're in the moment, you're just working with, you know, your viewpoint and they're just doing the same thing. So psychodynamic lens kind of talks about, you know, some of the experiences that you've been through and how it shaped the way that you see the world. It also talks about um, patterns of behavior. Um, and I think of that really as like coping strategies. And so ways of coping when we were little kids, right? Our developmental stage was different. Um, our capacity to communicate or problem solve is very, very different, hopefully. And then as we grow up, um, sometimes we carry along these these coping skills or these beliefs and perceptions about things that have happened to us, and we don't think about modifying them, mm. right? And so sometimes we don't need to do a lot of new work. We just have to go back a little bit, and we don't work from like the past, but we can look back if there's a learning moment, if there's some insights that we can draw, then we use those and I incorporate those then in the more like present moment work that we do because cognitive behavioral therapy is really focused on like the here and now versus other modalities that are maybe more past oriented. And so I like to incorporate different types of modalities just to make sure that we don't leave stones unturned um sometimes people just need like that light bulb moment mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. oh that's why i do that or oh i do that and i didn't realize i was doing that i was getting in my own way because i'm afraid or because i you know don't have that skill or don't have that perspective and so it's really just kind of starting where people are and then building the skills based on what they're already good at and what fits best with with what they're willing to try and what suits them the best. It sounds like a very non-judgmental way of thinking about yourself and about other people and definitely learning how to 
communicate effectively with people who seem like they're coming completely out of left field is a very important skill, I'm sure, in our job and in your job, <laughs> where you're just like, I know there's a reason why this person is acting this way, and I don't know if I'm going to completely understand it, but I know that I, it's you don't have to judge that person for being that way. You can try to understand them. That's exactly right. It's It's really flexible, and the whole point is ideally that we help people kind of recalibrate their brains to be a little bit more flexible. Um, mm-hmm. so that we don't create our own <laughs> distress. That sounds great. Like sign me up. For yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And it's <laughs> I want my brain to be flexible. <laughs> it's it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy and you have to dedicate it because it's it's definitely one of those things where I always tell people early on in therapy, like I don't have a magic wand. I don't just like you pop in for a twenty minute session, I bop you on the head and like ooh, you're fixed or whatever. It's like, yeah. we're going to work on this together, but it's what happens outside of the of the clinic that really makes a difference. And just like with anything else, if you put the time and energy in, you're basically just shaping that conditioning or recalibration in some cases, right? And retraining the brain, creating new networks within your brain, just like with anything else. And pretty soon, like the big sexy cell with cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe the only sexy cell, is that, <laughs> if you create that muscle memory, some of this stuff yeah. just becomes natural. It it becomes conditioned into your brain, and then pretty soon you don't have to do all that really intense, like focused, committed work with it. Your brain just starts to know how it's going to do things differently. And so, like for me, it was a year probably after I really committed to cognitive disputing, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, and diaphragmatic breathing, um, and then. I just realized at a couple different moments in my life, I thought back and it could have been like something that happened a day before. And I was like, how did that not cause me to panic? Or why did that not make me really angry? Or why yeah. did I not have a panic attack at all? And I could reflect back and I could kind of track down in my brain like, oh, you disputed that. And you were able to uh, just immediately in the background figure out why we weren't going to be so set on it's either this or that. It's either black or white. It's wrong or right, which is where I live naturally in the way that I think about things. And my brain was just like, not today, not today. We're just going to like maybe tell ourselves we got it wrong or we're not seeing the whole picture. And I mean, that's kind of the magic of CBT is like, if you, if you put the time and energy in, it'll just change the way that you think and experience life. So tell me honestly, When was the last time you sent a pet home with oral antibiotics just in case? I could have answered yesterday for most of my time in practice, and so could most veterinary professionals I know. Clients have come to expect us to dispense antibiotics to cover our bases or save them money, often without diagnostic testing. But it's time we took a more conservative approach. The 2022 AAFP AHA Antimicrobial Stewardship Guidelines outline real-world recommendations for decreasing antimicrobial use in your practice, creating a culture of good antibiotic stewardship within your team, and adjusting your clients' expectations and attitudes about how to know when antibiotics are necessary. Every veterinary professional, from client services rep to corporate medical director, has a role to play in protecting these priceless resources. See how you can get your team involved. The 2022 AAFP AHA Antimicrobial Stewardship Guidelines are available now and access is free and open to all at aha.org slash antimicrobials. It's like training any other muscle. Exactly. Take your brain to the gym. 
you're talking a lot about CBT as something that each individual person can use. Um, so techniques that you can use to sort of retrain your own brain and understand other people. Can CBT also be um, more of a, a practice that applies on an organizational level or is it limited just to work that individuals can do themselves? So CBT can be anything and everything that you want it to be. It can be scaled up or scaled down. And I think Rove is really a great example of how it can be used more of on a macro level. Um, so all of those individuals that came and listened to my talks and did the things that I offered them, they each are on their own journey. They're each applying the skills probably in a very unique way, even though they're doing all the same like tools. And then together, whether we like it or not, all of their brains are talking to each other. All the animal brains in that clinic are talking to each other too, but all the brains yeah. are just talking to each other. So if you have Charles floating around in the morning and he's having a great morning, he did some diaphragmatic breathing, he's getting ready for that surgery, whatever the case may be. And maybe his tech is just like, didn't sleep well that night, or maybe had too much caffeine, not enough caffeine and her brain's a little bit jittery, right? So just them being together one brain can really kind of toe the line a little bit and speak a little bit. The other thing too is that the way that they're using the skills and how connected their team is, is like one person might notice that the other person's getting stuck or, you know, in some situations like really frustrated. And if that person can catch it and they're all very connected, I'm sure you could tell that it's yeah. just, I mean, they're a family more than anything. Um, they rescue each other. Right. And they'll just be like, oh, that situation was not ideal. I don't know if they they popped that joke. <laughs> yes. Like that is their favorite did, thing. Yeah. I always ideal. tell them, like, you guys, if, <laughs> if you want me to be the butt of your joke in the clinic so you can get through your day, like by all means, that that's for free. <laughs> and so I think helping each other, right, sharing the tools or just reminding like when one brain stuck and the other brain can be like, I'm not stuck right now. Like, I think I can offer something mm -hmm. and it can just be a phrase that they learn together. Okay. Or the glitter globes that they made together. I mean, there's physical tools around the clinic now that they can do with the only rule, the glitter globes is that you don't throw them at people, you know, <laughs> these are very accessible <laughs> yeah. tools. And so again, like it, it can be on any scale. It just depends on like the level of commitment. And I think it's really important too, because there's, such huge diversity within CBT, all the different skills, all the ways that you can put it into practice, um, making sure that you have a wide range of things so that there's something for everybody. And if you're like, you know what, I probably should do diaphragmatic breathing right now, but I am too mad. Right. Yeah. What can you do instead? Exactly. It's like, <laughs> yeah. we all want to be that super woo woo person that like, can just like have a little Zen moment and find a unicorn floating around in a glitter globe, but we got to be real. It's not always, it's not always that pleasant. And so I think yeah. being able to be like, I want to do that. That's not available to me right now. What can I do next? And sometimes like, even for me, I'm, I use this stuff every single day in my life and Sometimes it's really messy, but I know that like I have pretty much endless ways that I can put something into practice. And so I think the larger scale is at a vet clinic, right? With everybody kind of understanding the premise of the model and then figuring out ways that they've all adapted these skills um, for themselves. 
that is such a great image of like all the brains in the clinic talking to each other because they do whether you want them yes. to or not right <laughs> like somebody's mood can bring the whole place down like really yes. fast and i i really love that so much like first of all it makes me think of the borg which is like a bad yes. image but also like in the best possible way i feel like this is nerd speak to like but i feel like that image of just sort of okay maybe the the organizational level is that all of our brains that are working so hard every day to make sense of what's going on around us get plugged into this big, um, big machine that is our team. And then whatever the the strongest emotion is or the strongest behavior is, is going to influence all the other ones. And thinking about it that way makes you maybe think twice before popping off or, you know, deciding you're going to indulge yourself and like be in, be in know, a stink have mood. A really bad yeah. Day. Yeah. Um, I, I just love that, it, that mental image. And I hope other people are getting that too, because it's really powerful. And the Grove team is special for sure. Like, you know, talking to Charles and Alana, you could just tell there's a very, there was a close knit aspect to this team before they started working with you. That's why they started working with you because their leader, Charles realized that they needed help and he wanted to do everything that he could to help them. But I'm just thinking about little teams within a vet clinic, even if leadership's not on board with creating a culture that includes some of these CBT techniques, like maybe the front office team mm -hmm. could help each other. That's a mini brain there. Um, maybe the technicians could ha have this language that they can speak with each other. And that is empowering in and of itself that you don't necessarily need to wait for leadership or management to catch on that this is important to make it work. Yep really love that. Okay. So would you be willing to talk about some of the specific exercises that you taught the Grove team um, and walk us through how, how those work? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing to understand is I, I kind of separate skills for people just to keep it simple in the beginning um, into two categories. So one is based on skills that will help you feel more comfortable more comfortable physically or physiologically, right? Because the stress, not only when we're cranky, but when we're really anxious, um, when we're sad, all of those things can take a physical um, expression. And when we're in fight or flight or freeze, right? We all understand animal behavior and that's us too. Mm -hmm. So thinking about what you see in a scared dog, right? And remembering that we are pretty much the same, right? Like our brains are almost identical. Um, yep. And my pants are always too long. So. <laughs> my sleeves are always too long. <laughs> so remembering is like, how well does a dog follow directions or do what it needs to do when it is afraid? A lot of dogs and cats, and I've even seen in my birds at the house, they won't even eat if they don't have the rest of their pack around, right? Because they're vulnerable. And so just... This is not my problem. <laughs> So, you know. <laughs> I just always thought it was weird. My Maine Coon would wait for me um, to eat his dinner and he would come over and just start chatting when I would get home from work and he would start eating. And I, I was like, how does this make sense to me? Right. Cause it's, I'm always looking at behavior and I was like, cause you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable yeah. when you're eating, doing certain behaviors, but also if you're stressed out, we are not designed to do a lot of other really important functions like thinking, um, remembering what we're doing communicating well and so I want to give people those tools first because if I started out with like oh do cognitive disputing or change your perception or change some language make it more neutral 
those things aren't going to be very accessible to people if they're in a stress response. And so we want to first have a sense of mastery with whatever types of skills work well for each person so that they can basically hardwire in through that muscle memory, an on-off switch to get themselves as quickly as possible out of a stress response so that you can have all those other really valuable parts of your brain come back online. And so once people learn those skills and I take them into like the other bucket, which I think of as cognitive skills, where we're going to really start doing kind of the hardwiring with thoughts, language, all of those things. And so there's two main skills that I really like for the physiological side of things. One is diaphragmatic breathing and the other one is sensory grounding. Um, so sensory grounding, did they talk about the glitter globes very much? I don't think so, no. Okay, so they did like a little craft make and take at the end of one of our talks. And we just got little plastic jars and they filled them with water and hand soap and a little bit of glitter with something significant or like special that they could find once you swirl it up. And so the sensory grounding really just looks at using your senses to distract whatever other thing is going on at the time because you really can't be mad you really can't be um, anxious if your brain is working really hard to find like this glitter unicorn and a whole swirl of glitter okay just that tactile thing too shaking up the glitter you can hear the glitter um, we don't usually eat the glitter so we don't do that particular sense but you can ground yourself with any object. My cheesy joke is like, you can just get a ball of dryer lint um, and you can ground yourself with that. So find an object. You can look up sensory grounding online and it'll take you through the most basic one does like a five, four, three, two, one, where you're using all your different senses and you're keeping track, you're counting, right? Name five things you can see and you're just describing and you're engaging all of your senses and your focus within your environment around you and so if you're if you're really getting into it you're not going to be able to do anything else and when people first start that skill like many of the skills that I offer you'll get pulled away from it if you've ever tried to meditate do a lot of mindfulness stuff and you're anxious which is probably why you're doing it you're going to be pulled away from the skill I always tell people don't be frustrated with yourself just honor that you got pulled away you're human bring yourself back to the skill and some days, especially when you're new with these skills, it's going to feel like you were more pulled away than you were doing the skill. But pretty soon, if you keep practicing, it'll just become kind of second nature to you. So the sensory grounding is one. We won't spend a lot of time on that just because there's so many different variations that each person can find out what works for them. And there's a lot of information online. Diaphragmatic. I really want to make a glitter globe now, though. Yeah. So I think everybody should yeah. do that. Yeah, so the, <laughs> the only problem is, like, especially for anybody who's more, like, aquatic um, animal stuff is, like, I heard that glitter is bad for our environment. So sorry about that. You can put probably a lot of things in a glitter globe, though, so it doesn't have to be glitter. Yeah. Um, or you can do dryer lint. Biodegradable glitter. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to last forever. Exactly, exactly. Anyway. Um, Dryerland. It's not as it's cute. It's not as cute. Readily available. Readily available. <laughs> I love glitter. So that's like, I'll, I'll do everything else for the environment, but I'm not ready to part with my glitter. So the other piece is diaphragmatic breathing. Um, 
and there's endless amounts of names and labels for all the cool different breathing skills. Um, if you've ever practiced yoga, most yoga practice will incorporate some type of specific breathing, and they almost always have a cool name with them. Have you done any types mm -hmm. of diaphragmatic breathing yourself? Uh, in yoga, definitely. Um, you know, at least I was told how to do it. I don't know if I was actually breathing from my diaphragm, <laughs> if that's what we're talking about. Um, but I have done some breathing exercises in yoga and then also um, through trying to incorporate mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, so I would argue that there's probably not a lot of wrong ways to do a breathing skill. Part of it, which is the coolest part, is that it's mostly just distracting your brain from freaking mm -hmm. out or <laughs> being mad. And so yeah. there's enough components there where you have to like think about what you're doing the half the battle is one. So the one I'd like to yeah. do today is called triangle breathing. And it's just because there's three sides to it. I always recommend to people that you start out with like a count of four for each side. You always want to start with an inhale so you don't pass out. Although if you pass out, you probably won't be too stressed. So kind of works, but like not <laughs> ideal. <laughs> I don't know. I passed out in the vet clinic one day and because uh, it was pain actually. It's a oh, whole no. other story. But the vet tech who who saw me fall over, I think was pretty stressed out. So I don't, I don't recommend yeah. that because it might be easy on you, but it's not going to be easy. Your peers will panic. Um, yes. So that's, that's the big part is like start with breathing in first. And if you have any kind of breathing um, issues, asthma, anything like that, um, the thought of long COVID came to mind, which is so bizarre that I'm now working mm -hmm. pandemic-y things into my spiel. Um, but a count of yeah. four is usually a pretty good fit for most people. If you play the tuba or like are a vocalist or something, um, you can probably go pretty big. Um, and then as you continue these breathing practices, you might notice that you're able to actually do quite a long count. Um, so like for me, most of the time, I'm up to like an eight count. Otherwise, I feel like I'm you know, breathing too quickly. So what this looks like is we'll start by breathing in for a count of four, and then we'll hold that breath for a count of four, and then we'll exhale for a count of four. If it's okay with you, I'd like to take you around the triangle twice, just so that you can get a little bit more of a vibe for it without spending a lot of time on it. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All I'm right, ready. go ahead and breathe in, two, three, four, hold two, three, four, breathe out, two, three, four, breathe in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, breathe out, two, three, four. It feels nice. And I noticed doing it too, that it's the hold that really matters for me anyway, mm -hmm. because I feel like we're told sometimes like breathe, like take a breath, but the holding is what really makes you concentrate and like come into your body because you can't just hold your breath for that long without thinking about it at all. Um, and yet at the same time, I feel like when I do that, I realize I've been holding my breath all day. Yeah. <laughs> like I've been just breathing from here and not, yeah. Here. yeah, so that's just, that's one of endless, probably, variations of diaphragmatic breathing. So some of the parts that make it useful and make it work really well is that, one, you got to listen to me, right? My 
my voice mm-hmm. always changes. I go therapist voice when I do that. And it calms it me did, down yeah. too, right? So <laughs> you can help other yeah. people do this and you'll probably want to fall asleep too. Um, added benefits for everyone. But we're counting. We're thinking about, like even me, like I could probably do this on autopilot all day long. I've done it so many times. But we're counting. We're keeping track of it. We're also keeping track of like, I'm like, oh, did I just say in? Did I just say hold? Am I supposed to be breathing out? What am I... Am I going to pass out? Am I going to, when do I get to take a deep breath in? Right. And sometimes your anxiety like helps with this because you're having to keep track of these things. Some other ways to make it interesting and make it, make it a little bit more complicated is you can work in like a mantra or a coping um, kind of statement if you want. So if you're really struggling with anxiety or something like that, you can say, I am calm. And some people like to have like the right amount of syllables for their counts. Other people will just draw it out and they'll just kind of listen to their body and say like, okay, I think my hold's done. And then they'll shift into like a slow exhale. And so again, you can make it however you want. Some people will visualize something. Like I'm a very visual learner. Um, And so for me, sometimes I will think about like an image um, in my mind. One of the things I do, I've had an iPhone since they came out. And when I do like the, the software update, I think it it takes forever and sometimes it looks like the bar is like never even moving and then you get the full bar finished and then there's like the second bar. There's always two bars, which is super frustrating to me. So I use that in my diaphragmatic breathing (laughs) when I do just a basic controlled inhale, controlled exhale and the component that makes it complicated. I always tell people like try to make the inhale just the same exact length as the exhale. That's what you want to focus on. So again, some people will default to counting or doing like a beat, like you're bobbing your head as you listen to the cadence of my voice, right? And so sometimes Mm -hmm. people will do any little thing. For me, since I'm visual, I will think about my software update. And what's cool or nerdy, you can take it however you want, is like, I mean, I referenced the Borg. The Borg, I know. And I, I have to admit that that really brought joy to my <laughs> life. So um, <laughs> not many people would have reached for that. Uh, when you do a software update, what do you know what that's for? Do you ever read like the fine print before you hit accept on a software update? It's usually like bug It fixes, fixes <laughs> bugs. And I'm like, you know what? I don't yeah. like that, but I am super buggy. My apps have been crashing all day <laughs> and I need an update, right? I need to, I need to power down, yeah. fix some things, clean up some things, right? Maybe I got hacked. I don't know. Yeah. And that bad moment that I had <laughs> or that snarky comment that someone made to me, it hacked. And so I just have to reset. Yep. And so for me, like building in all those extra components makes the skill meaningful for me. And it gives me enough to connect it to in my world that it it's a very meaningful reset. And so I imagine when I breathe in, I imagine that first promising, but sometimes just grueling first bar of an update and then once it clears, you think, oh, my phone's going to turn back on. There'll be so many texts waiting for me. And then a new bar, and that's when you exhale. <laughs> that is a great image. And, like, I picture going up and down the legs yes. of the triangle as we were doing that. And I guess I've done box breathing before and pictured, like, going yep. around the box. Um, but I also love the idea that each side is kind of like one of those bars that's filling in um, for the software update, except that, of course, you never know when the software update yeah. is going to end. <laughs> um, but that's it's such good good imagery. And just like, it's so simple. It's so simple. And um, something that you could actually do very easily with yeah. your team, too. 
just be like, hey, everyone, let's take a few yep. triangle breaths like before we go into this and appointment. And if, if you think it's cheesy or you think it's woo-woo, we're here for you with that, too. You can make it a board cube and do square breathing, right? Because <laughs> right. I'm here for that. Like, everybody, everybody has, to, has breathe. to breathe. So, <laughs> like, if it feels woo-woo to call it diaphragmatic breathing or, like, a calming breath and you're just not into that, you can call it whatever you want. You can work in whatever weird stuff just like makes sense to you and you can do it and no one will know that you're calming down or that you were even worked up to begin with. So it's, it's available for every mind. I love that. Yeah. So great. Helen, if there are people listening and they want to know more, I know you said that there's a ton of resources online they can Google. Um, but do you have any in particular that you'd want to share or do you recommend like, if it's possible to go to a mental health professional, I'm assuming that that would always be a welcome addition. Um, but if that's not possible for them, how would you suggest they go about learning more about CBT? I think, um, you know, there's endless resources online. Um, and with a really quick Google search and a good place to start, honestly, is just looking up CBT, look at the people who are responsible for thinking it up and labeling it. Um, there's, you know, one primary father of CBT. Um, But there's a lot of people who have contributed to this theory and all the different interventions that we use. And so I would say start there, get, you know, some names in your head of like, who is directly related to this theory and some of the different practices that have come out of it. And then make sure that the resources you're looking at are at least something, you know, that are coming from maybe one of the founders. you probably can't really do a lot of harm if you if you find some book that says it's CBT and it's really not. Um, but I would always just say, like, educate yourself, get familiar with it. Um, there's apps that you can get no matter what kind of phone you have. Um, there's stuff that you can incorporate on your smartwatch um, that will guide you through diaphragmatic breathing or whatever it is that you want. Um, And so I would say, you know, therapy, is it right for everyone? I think it could be helpful for everyone all our lives long, but I know for a lot of reasons it's not accessible or it's not something that people feel comfortable doing and that's okay. Therapy isn't the end all be all of becoming more psychologically flexible or comfortable or learning these skills. You can do it on your own. Um, If a group feels more accessible, um, you can do that. And it can be an online group where you can remain anonymous if you want. You can use, we have text lines now and and anonymous lines that you can call on your phone if you just need someone to listen to you. Um, Within the vet profession, I'd say it's kind of one of those niche career fields where like you probably will get more out of it if you know that who you're talking to maybe has had some similar experiences. And we see that a lot of times with mental health, like veterans are very commonly thought of as like, they don't want to go to a therapist who's never experienced some similar things. Um, You just don't connect as easily. Um, So there Mm -hmm. are are different groups. And I would say that this profession might be one of them where you want to know that the person sitting in front of you offering you skills and tools and maybe empathy is somebody who's had similar experiences. So I would say... um, I know Charles introduced me, not one more vet, um, was created mm-hmm. for a really, really important reason. And I've looked at that website a number of times I get their newsletter. It's full of really good information. Um, so I would reach out to places like that, that are going to be streamlined yeah. specifically for people dealing with some of the things unique to your profession. Um, 
But other than that, you can first contact your primary care doctor or whoever your medical provider is. See if there's a behavioral health provider that's integrated into the clinic. That is a nice way. It doesn't feel like you're going to a therapist for many people. It feels like mm -hmm. I'm going to my doctor's office and this is someone my doctor already trusts and has a relationship with. Um, a lot of times we're doing kind of more straightforward clinical approaches. Like CBT feels pretty clinical and direct for a lot of people. If you know you want talk therapy, I would look on psychologytoday.com. Um, that's a big website. You can just type in your zip code um, if you don't want to do therapy in your own town. Like I live in a small community, um, so I get that. You can just type in a zip code for the nearby city that you would feel more comfortable in. And then I would enter in your insurance type and you can even click the type of intervention style that you want. You can click if you have a preferred um, gender for the person who you're going to be working with. Some people feel more comfortable working with a female or a male clinician. You can really filter down specifically what you think will work. Um, and then you can start making some phone calls. You can read people's bios and you can see their the photographs of their faces, which this is the only time I would recommend judging a book by its cover because psych stuff is weird like if they remind you of like some kid that pulled your ponytail in third grade like they might be the yeah. best clinician that, yeah you're just gonna be like start. i just don't like you i don't know why um so just do whatever is comfortable for you the biggest thing is like just knowing that if you're struggling with anxiety or depression um if you're having thoughts of suicide that it, that is not a way to have a good quality of life and it doesn't mean that you're broken or that your character is flawed or that you're you know ill it just means that you're going through human stuff and you deal with a lot and that to me is like would you want anybody else that you know or love to suffer when there's so many resources out there to feel better I was thinking about this last night and I was thinking like, okay, how could I kind of like gently peer pressure someone in this profession to like take better care of themselves? Because most of the people I've met in this profession are like really stubborn, perfectionists, like give me the facts, right? They don't want woo woo stuff. And so I'm like, how do we, how do we make this something that feels accessible? Um, and so yeah. I thought about like, if a rescue pup came into your clinic and it was sad or scared, like, would you just be like, eh, dog really just needs to grow up and like, just tough it out, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't like, no, you would get maybe a weighted blanket out. Like we got all the woo woo things for dogs now. Prozac sometimes is necessary. Like I have a wiener dog. Yep. Better yeah, living to exactly. chemistry like, My wiener dog has yeah. had a lot of traumatic experiences and I didn't want to be the mom that was medicating, but we did that for a short time. We leveled out some of that brain chemistry while we were working on behavioral changes. And my dog is, you know, riding free. He doesn't use any antidepressants now, but we use them as a tool. And, um, mm -hmm. I would just think like, if you cannot imagine doing these things for yourself because it makes you feel like weird <laughs> think about what you would say if somebody else came to you and said they were struggling with the same things would you tell them to get over it or would you want to help them and try all the tools and things that are available to help them be more comfortable and healthy um i mean the main thing comes down to is like if you want to stay in your profession and you want to be able to do that your whole life long you're gonna have to make self-care you're gonna have to make mental health like just as much part of your daily routine as everything else because 
it's just too it's just too hard to get through it without making yourself a priority yeah all of that yeah all of it (laughs) because we yeah we are historically very bad at that in this profession and sometimes creating a little bit of distance between you and the decision um as steve magnus also said when he was a guest that really that mental picture really helped me is like stepping back and saying okay this decision is about a person not it's about katie not it's about me but rather what would i tell my friend katie in this situation um and almost always it'll be the right advice and then we'll be like oh gosh i absolutely would never have made that decision for me and that's a little bit sad, but also it's a fixable problem. It's a it's so, a lot human though. Um, let's go for yeah, the problems yeah. we can fix. Yeah, it's it a really lot human. Is. Yeah, it, it's a especially for people yeah. who so, are healers and people who practice medicine and yeah. and we often don't reflect that same courtesy and grace and understanding and problem solving lens that we use for everything else we do in yeah. a day. Um, and so, I mean doesn't have to be woo woo, but just take one step, right? Just take one step and try to incorporate one little piece into your life. And then pretty soon, if you work really hard at it, it becomes automatic. And then you can make one new step in the right direction. And that way you can, you can do what you love and you can be healthy and you can have the, the quality of life you'd want for anybody else. Yeah. Physical exam didn't used to be automatic either, (laughs) you know? And now you've been out of school a while, you're you're used to it. You know, if you're a technician, the exam room flow is automatic now once you've been doing it for a while. But at the beginning, it was terrifying and you had to think about every step. And this is really the same thing. Um, So, Helen, thank you. This has been so exciting and helpful and like empowering. And I really hope people listening feel the same way and can take even just that one technique that you had us demonstrate today. I hope they can take that with them and, um, and work it Me in. Too. And see how I it mean, goes. we had Borg, we had wiener dogs. I feel like it was a really well-balanced episode. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had pop culture and science. We snuck the self-care in there. Just real, so. real sly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Helen, thank you. And um, I'm going to definitely post a link in the notes to the episode with Charles and Alana from Grove Veterinary Clinic, um, who worked so hard with Helen to make some of these changes and bring that that sort of hive mind mentality to their team. And it's working really well for them. And maybe it could work for your hospital too. So definitely email me at podcast at aha.org if you want to get in contact with any of these wonderful people, or if you have questions or comments, or if you've tried any of this yourself, I'd love to hear about that. So contact me anytime. Thank you, Helen. And thanks to all of you for listening. Mm -hmm.